This is an ABC podcast. Hope you're enjoying RN Summer. Welcome to the minefield. The best thereof, can I say. This is the best we got from 2020. I don't know what that says. Well, um, what it says uh, is that if you're not liking this, then you might as well <laughs> ignore the rest of the done. back catalogue. <laughs> that, incidentally, was, is the voice of Scott Stevens, my co-host. Uh, this is the voice of Waleed Ali. And um, it was a hard year to choose best ofs. But I think last week we did very well. We did, we did the Ordinary Vices one and we did Pride. Mm-hmm. And I, I was always partial to that show and that idea for that show. We're doing another Ordinary Vice today. Scott, what are we doing? We are. We're doing Impatience. Uh, like we mentioned last week, if Pride is at the is at the bottom, at the root of so many vices, then impatience is probably the habit that we are most disposed to today. When this show first went to air, it was in June. June seems like mm. a lifetime away. I don't know about you, yeah. Waleed, but we were in the throes of so many things changing. I think you may well even notice as the conversation unfolds, we sound a little bit bewildered. <laughs> we sound a little <laughs> bit tired. And I think certainly we're experiencing a degree of moral disorientation. We are. Enjoy. (laughs) Our our show has changed substantially. I remember quite vividly the first year we were doing this. Mm. I mean, I I think I know you pretty well. I think I know the kind of things that motivate you and that get a little bit of a fire going in your soul. But that first year, you just, you flummoxed me show after show after show by mounting arguments that you fundamentally did not believe in. Just to enjoy the bit of frisson, the bit of... Hang on, this is, this is a gross misrepresentation. Like, what did I do? What sort of... What argument are you talking about? Oh, I'm, I can't quite remember the arguments now, but... Yeah, your story's no, falling no, apart no, no, already, I'm, isn't it? I'm more than happy to do a bit of research and to come back to you with a fairly full it, okay. list, but, if, but if, it does if strike your factual, yeah. If your factual assertion is correct, it yeah. wasn't just for the frisson. It was out of a deeply held belief that the best way for us to discuss these issues with the hope of arriving at what we think might be the best version of understanding it is to explore the claims and counterclaims that are on the table. Yes, that and is... if you're not prepared to offer the particular argument, True. then someone else is going to have to do that noble work. And that just had to be me because there was no one else in the studio. Fair enough. Fair enough. I think that's maybe a little bit of a noblization of what was going on (laughs) on a few occasions. There was a particular show that I remember now, by the way, that had to do with sex work. And I seem to remember you mounting a particular argument involving sex work and haircuts. That, okay, um, no. What I was doing was I said, if you, I remember this, okay, <laughs> let's do this. Can we just throw out the... Re- Apologies to our guest who's sitting there wondering, oh, what the Lord. hell have I walked into? No, I, what I did was I said, well, you, you, I can't remember how, where you were going exactly. I don't but remember. I said, well, there's a, there's a liberal conception of this that goes like this. That is that sex work's providing a service. It's no different to providing any other service like a, a haircut. And that's that. And we proceeded from that. I don't, I don't even think at any point I was signing up to the liberal creed. I was no, just saying, no, you, need no. to, you need to reckon with this because that's, that's the, the countervailing worldview here. And in fact, that's the way in which any good conception of the good does advance by means oh, really? of point, yeah. counterpoint, and 
Come, come right round to my argument. There you are. Which I assume you believe. That was all just a very long way of saying. I think one mm. of the nice things about the way the show has developed is I never feel that sense of gap anymore. Maybe this is because I just don't know you. Between what it is you say and what it is you feel, I feel that the points of kind of friction and disagreement and agreement have really sharpened, have defined themselves, and now we know pretty much where those forms of agreement, disagreement, commonality, and division might be. And that's all a longer way of saying, I really do think that listening to the minefield is good for you. This is precisely that kind of slow, deliberate, intentional attentiveness to ourself, to our to the moral life, to the way in which we think and the way in which we comport ourselves in the world uh, that we need at a moment like this that you got to admit, Waleed, is incredibly tiring. Yeah. It, I feel like every year we say it's been a particularly exhausting yeah, year, hasn't it? Yeah, but yep. I mean, come on. I mean, this year is ridiculous, which is why we did set ourselves the challenge at the start of the year, which we have not done with the regularity that we said we would. In fairness, a pandemic intervened. So, yeah. you know, off my back. Um, we, <laughs> we said we, we, we wanted to do something semi-regularly, hopefully monthly. That's not what we said at the beginning. It's what I'm saying now. About what maybe in times past would have been called deadly sins. I think maybe a better description is the one that Montagne uses. He calls them ordinary vices. Those vicious little things that parasite on modern life, that draw a degree of their sustenance from some of our worst inclinations, from some of our deepest personal and social or societal temptations, and that don't present themselves as being problematic in any way, but that are. We've done lying. We've done uh, pride. We've done contempt today. This is your suggestion, and I'm really keen to hear why you wanted it. It doesn't seem like a very noble one in the middle of that list, but you wanted to do impatience. And it's, I mean, I love it. I love it. I think you're absolutely right. The more I've <laughs> thought about it, I think, yes, that's the one. That's the next one to go to. But I want to hear why you wanted it. Well, firstly, I think this has been a year of impatience. Um. I don't have formed thoughts on this exactly, but I've been really intrigued to watch our responses uh, just as human beings to trying to live through a pandemic and live through lockdown and the speed with which we became impatient. We sort of entered with this sort of noble high-mindedness of making a sacrifice for the greater good. And then as soon as any kind of success was realised on that front, particularly in Australia, we very quickly kind of seemed to fall away from it and start banging down the door for restrictions to be eased. And the, which, you know, I think there are people who have very good reasons for banging down that door, particularly economic ones mm -hmm. where their livelihoods are at stake. And they have very legitimate questions to ask about whether or not the destruction of their livelihoods are still necessary. So I'm not criticising those instincts. But I, I think... It probably is really was really well distilled by our attitude towards school closures. Remember how we got so anxious about school closures that notwithstanding the constant reassurance of the federal government that schools being open was perfectly safe, we demanded that they be shut. Yeah. And then once they were shut for a week and we realised that having our kids at home wasn't as great as we perhaps <laughs> expected and made life a little bit difficult, we opened the schools again. <laughs> um, there was a certain thing about that that I thought captured 
in miniature that collision between human nature and the sort of um, uh, unwavering demands that a pandemic puts upon you. So, you know, I think impatience has kind of been there. Um, we've lived it and expressed it in a way that's different because we're in very unusual circumstances. But then the more I think about it, the question of patience and, and what exactly patience is, so I don't want to foreclose that because I don't think, for me, it's a much more active concept hmm, than I think people often assume. I think people... Sorry, patience, 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 you mean? Yes. Yeah, yeah I agree. I think, I think people think of patience as... Passivity. Something passive. Yeah. You just sit down and wait, right? And that's not what I mean by it. So I want to get into that. But the more I think about it, I think patience is at the heart of every human achievement, just about every moral virtue. It's that ability of, to persevere, but that ability also to sit with whether it be discomfort or pain or, um, or something, a deeply unsatisfactory case of affairs and not waver, not lose yourself. Hmm. that I think is, in some ways, the chief human virtue. If, if Well, maybe I want to retract that. I'll think about that. <laughs> I was perhaps going for something I shouldn't have. But I, it's really, really important is what I want to say. And so much is contingent on it that simply throwing it to the wind and indulging in impatience, particularly if you're doing it in a sort of um, instinctive, unthinking, reactive way, I think carries all kinds of attendant attendant dangers to society, but also just to the self. I think that's a really nice way of putting it. I wouldn't go as far as you were kind of feeling towards with the chief virtue, but let me let me give you one formulation better. There's this wonderful paper called Trust and Antitrust by the great New Zealand moral philosopher Annette Bayer. She cribs this idea from another moral philosopher named Cecilia Bach, where she says that everything that is good in human life thrives in the environment of trust. And I kind of feel like maybe what you're feeling your way towards is everything that we ought to prize most, everything that we ought to ascribe the greatest value to, thrives, in fact, in an environment that is characterized by patience or by a particular comportment, let's say, to yeah. the idea of time. And I think that's that, I really love that. And I'm, I'm so glad that you put forward the topic because it's given me an opportunity to sort of think my way through it in a way that I don't think I would have otherwise. I think what's sort of interesting here, there are two ways we could take this. And it would be very easy, I think, to talk about impatience in the context either of our desperation to get the kids back to school or to get back to the stores or to get back to various forms of leisure consumption that we were you know, sort of free to engage in before, or even to conflate impatience with what we've often talked about on this show, which is the kind of cult of convenience that, you know, what I want is what I want, and I want it as soon as humanly possible. Um, so I think those things are very much attendant on this temptation to be impatient that really is part of the human condition. I think it's really dangerous whenever we think about human life or think about the human experience of time as a kind of commodity that one must wring maximum amount of either efficiency or achievement or profit out of. I think any kind of commodification of time or any reduction of time to the use value uh, to, you know, towards my particular project, I think that is fraught with danger. But I just wonder, Walid, if you know, that, that would be a very easy and maybe even a productive way. I'm not going to rule that out. But it seems to me that there is something about patience that 
has a, you have to, please forgive me. It has a teleological dimension to it, which is why it's not passivity. It's not just waiting for something to happen. Mm. But it's also non-teleological in the sense that it doesn't anticipate in advance what that outcome might be. So maybe we could refer to it as purposive, but open-endedly so. What it seems to me patience does is it refuses to fill an uncomfortable space with clutter, with chatter. It refuses to cut straight to the end of things in order to foreclose the discomfort that attends any condition in which there is the chance that something new might emerge. You, you, you could even say, I think, that patience is at the heart of any serious political or a seriously innovative or radical political policy. I mean, what is, for instance, the demand for a First Nations voice to parliament, but a call for a kind of political patience? Don't anticipate in advance what it might mean for the, uh, for the moral primacy of First Nations in, this, in Australia uh, to receive that kind of political recognition. Don't anticipate in advance what it might mean to redefine the very notion of Australianness by bringing a First Nations voice into the heart of the political system. Instead, bring these two things together, but not too close together. Don't foreclose the time frame. Simply bring these two things into the necessary proximity and see what emerges from it. It, it just strikes me that patience, that kind of purposive but not teleologically foreclosed sense of waiting or patience, that really is the, the attempt at kind of constructing a sort of transformative, morally transformative space. Yeah, I think that's true. Um, perhaps a more bureaucratic a managerial way of saying it, a couple of other things, <laughs> um, is to be more concerned with process than outcome. Yeah, that's probably, yeah, that's not bad. So it is bad. It's prosaic. No, I, it's prosaic. I apologize. No, I apologize for resorting to that and sullying this August program and radio station. But um, it's sort of the neatest, quickest way I could think of of summarizing it. I think it's, it's that, I think the reason it matters is that it makes you, it forces you to be concerned first and foremost, with the propriety of your own conduct. Hmm. And it may well be that you achieve what you're seeking to achieve, or it may not be. But what you won't do is throw out the moral rule book in the search for some outcome that you've deemed to be essential. Hmm. And if I look at the sort of, I was going to say slow, but it feels like it's accelerating at the moment, destruction of... Um, democratic culture around the world. I feel like that would be a neat description of it. Yeah. Uh, the throwing yeah. away of all kinds of rule books and moral strictures in the search for particular outcomes. The fact that we've become so outcome focused, if you like, um, I, I see good reasons for us to be concerned with outcomes uh, and even to measure the success of, or otherwise a policy on the basis of outcomes, but to be so outcome focused almost as a um, normative position um, or even an epistemological position, I think runs the risk of planting decay in the the very heart of the body politic or even just within society. Would it be too much too to much? say that, that what patience does is it gives you the opportunity not to get what you want, but to have what it is that you thought you wanted 
transformed. Yeah. Yeah. And yeah. you're self-sustained. Yeah. Nice. All right. You're listening to The Minefield. You can do that on RN, which you might be doing right now, but you can catch us anytime on the ABC Listen app. You can also subscribe to our podcast, which I would recommend, uh, if only because you get to hear us bang on for longer, usually with our guest, who has far more interesting things to say than us, um, and so we give them more space to do so. Scott. Speaking of guests, um, many of you don't know this. One of the hardest parts of the show... And one of the most delightful parts of the show is lining up and working out the logistics of who it is that gets to come on the program and working out the right time for that to happen. This is the result of, what is it? Is it nearly three and a bit years? I've been trying for at least three years, I think, to get Michelle Bulos walker onto this program. So this is a minor success for me and a cause of tremendous joy. <laughs> Michelle is Associate Professor in Philosophy in the School of Historical and Philosophical Inquiry at the University of Queensland. She is quite simply one of Australia's finest philosophers, an extraordinary, I think, contributor and voice to not just the public life, but also to our common and moral lives. Michelle, thank you so much, finally, for joining us on The Minefield. Oh, Scott, it's a delight to be here. Thank you. I bet you had some regrets when you heard us open up and Scott started asking me about haircuts and sex work. That must have been a fun moment. Well, I thought it was the mounting the argument in relation to sex work that really was the most interesting part there. It did feel a little bit like an intimate over um, eavesdropping. <laughs> so, 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 Michelle, I'm going to give you the opportunity. You've, I mean, you've heard us talk about patience, impatience, in a range of possible philosophical registers. There's one that we haven't quite touched on, which I suspect is going to be a little bit closer maybe to the way that you might want to frame it. And certainly if we wanted to bring someone like Simone Weil into the conversation, she would really, I suspect, refer to patients almost in terms of attentiveness. The simple, extremely active, I mean, she always described it as a form of, of, of deliberate, uh, almost ferocious or exhausting action. But the attentiveness, the, the inclination of the self to the sheer reality of the other without feeling the need to foreclose or to, uh, or to subject to the reality of the other to my own program, my own project, my own purpose. Do you think attentiveness is a better way of talking about what it is that we're talking about? I do, Scott. I, I really think attentiveness for me would be the starting point. Um, terms like attentiveness and also intensity. Um, you know, I would have something to say about that. But perhaps before we get on to that, well, I just go backwards a little and, and just point out, of course, that I guess impatience. We've got two terms here, as I understand it: impatience and patience. And impatience itself is not a mortal sin. But certainly, I think we can see it as an ordinary vice. Impatience is interesting, though, because impatience can lead to wrath, which, you know, is anger and, and is certainly a, a mortal sin in that sense. Uh, it can lead to, to anger. It can lead to wrath. It can lead to violence. So I think that's our concern with impatience, or at least one of our concerns with impatience. I guess another thing or another aspect here is to, to ask the question, seems like a silly question in a way, but I don't think it is. And that is, is, is patience the opposite of impatience? Mm. You know, and I'm, I'm not completely certain that they are, but I think we can proceed at the moment as if, as if they are the same thing. 
What what gives you hesitation though? Why why do you think they might not be the opposite of one another? It's just an intuition. I'm just wondering. Um, you know, I I think that it's worth uh, exploring. I mean, I'm really interested to explore the question of patience, and. Uh, I actually want to explore it in relation to waiting, which is interesting because both of you kind of jump back in relation to waiting as a passive activity, suggesting that, you know, patience is not necessarily passive, but that waiting is. And I would want to contest that or at least, you know, question that. I think, can I just clarify what I mean by that? I, I, what I mean is it's not, patience doesn't connote merely doing nothing. So, and I, yes, I see you could argue that waiting is doing something. But what I mean by that is it may well be that you are working towards something. And as a result of that work, you're not seeing results. It might be in political activism. It might be in the context of learning a musical instrument. It might. There's all kinds of contexts in which you could imagine this happening. Mm. The patience that I'm thinking about is the patience that forces you into persisting with that action with whatever right conduct it is that the situation calls for, notwithstanding the fact that there might be a hopelessness that um, an outside observer would see to what you're doing. Uh, you know, the classic scriptural example might be the example of of Noah who runs around preaching for, well, I guess it depends which account you believe, but um, something in the order of 900 years and no one believes him. And he persists, and he persists, and he persists. And then one day he builds a boat and a flood comes and it turns out he was right. Um, it's that kind of, th this is what I mean by it being an active concept that makes me want to distinguish it merely from waiting, which may not require you to, to do anything. Mm, no, I'm fully on board with you there, Waleed, in terms of patience. But I want to extend what you're saying there to waiting as well. And can I just give a really simple um current, very current uh, example of that. And that, and that is um, there are two reactions to uh, the, the horrific death of George Floyd, at least two reactions. And one of those is by Donald Trump. And what we have there is a really hasty, impatient response that does so much damage that's uh, lacking in thought, lacking in engagement. We could go on and on about what that really is. You know, it's projecting a limited and, and hurried kind of, of um, demand. He's in fact, you know, in his hasty tweets, his impatient tweets, he's talked about the need for overwhelming force, uh, for domination, and he speaks mm. of weak governments. So we know that. Now, in response to that, you've got Justin Trudeau's silence, which, you know, what is it, literally 21 seconds of silence. Uh, when asked about Trump's response, there's 21 seconds of silence recorded. And then he, when he does speak, so he's waiting, he's actually waiting. Mm. And when he does speak, it's then a time, he talks about what's important now is the time to listen and to learn uh, and to continue to learn about what injustices are continuing. So what I'm suggesting here is that that waiting that he does it's certainly a patience as well, but it's an active waiting that actually achieves something ethically. Mm. Yep. That's, that's interesting. I, I, I think that's, I'm, look, I, I think that's right. I think that's a powerful point to make. It seems to me that one of the things, though, that Donald Trump has done that also falls under, I think, the proscription of what it is that we're talking about by impatience 
is so characterizing the person trying to speak that their voice fundamentally becomes incommunicative, that there is just nothing to say, uh, that they have to say that one needs to hear. And I guess that maybe brings us back to, and this is something I suspect we might want to pick up in the podcast, for any waiting to happen, that waiting has to be sustained by something. And that thing that sustains, I mean, this is something that Hannah Arendt noticed about really any sort of uh, uh, a morally compelling form of, uh, of either moral action or political action, that the means have to be sustained by the fact that some end that is being sought reaches up and meets it midway, uh, maybe even surprises it midway. So I wonder, we might need to talk a little bit about what it is that sustains waiting so that it doesn't just become, if you like, uh, a kind of stoic uh, uh, version of patience. Well, you've set up the podcast very, very well, Scott, <laughs> so thank you very much for doing it. Michelle Bullis-Walker is our guest for this week's edition of The Mindfield. She'll hang around for the podcast element, which is about to begin now. Okay, so Michelle, let's just pick up at exactly this point, because I think the point that you've made is really, really important. Um, but there is something, I mean, do, do, you, do you dispute that, that fundamental idea that for waiting to in fact be waiting and not just hanging around, uh, that the waiting does in fact have to be sustained by something, especially if we're talking about sort of change over the long term, or even the kind of change that would sufficiently interrupt the sickening drumbeat of the kind of injustice that we've seen recently? Um, it's a hard one, Scott, but I'll say that I do at this stage. But let me just try and make that concrete in relation to Trudeau's response, if I may. Mm. And that is what sustains the waiting, the 21 seconds of silence. I think what sustains the waiting is the acute sense that we see on his face and in his, his bodily um, response, in his body language, the acute sense of battling and struggling with what it is he can possibly say in response to this impossible question, or at least this politically impossible question. So I think you see the struggle absolutely pass over and pass across his face and, and become manifest. Um, and rather than jumping in hastily, you know, solving the problem or, or providing some kind of basic st statement there, he, he lets us sit with his discomfort and you see that discomfort. Hmm. He's not merely waiting then, is he? Well, yes, I, but I, this is what I'm trying to say is I think he is waiting, but he's waiting in the sense that someone like Simon Weil would respond to waiting. Hmm. I mean, the, waiting is, is a very active term in, in Weil's philosophy, in her ethical work. I want to ask about righteous impatience, which we've kind of skimmed Impo over. Very important, yeah. Yeah. Hmm. Does it exist? Uh, have we seen it uh, on display in exactly the same scenario in the United States where... You've seen protests erupt into violence. What do we, what do we have here? Do we can we open the door to a righteous impatience without somehow compromising some you know greater moral virtue? Mm. I, I think that's perhaps right, Walid, and I think that goes back to the discussion of whether or not patience and impatience are oppositional or or you know opposed, and that is that if you go back 
perhaps to what you were mentioning in the introduction, Scott, and the question of um, the Uluru Statement from the Heart, um, there's a huge impatience and a, I think a rightful and justified impatience with our lack of engagement in this country with the, hu- the enormity that comes out of the Uluru Statement from the Heart. So you could say in many senses that in political ways and in ethical ways, and impatience with moving this process forward is an understandable thing. This is, this is complicated for me, though. I think you're absolutely right. I think you're absolutely right. But there's impatience and then there's impatience, isn't there? So, for instance, there is the kind yeah. of impatience that would see uh, something is better than nothing, a kind of brokered compromise that gets us almost to the point where that would kind of be defensible to our people would be okay. And so we rush forward to something that would be, you know, at least enough to help us keep our heads high. That would be the kind of impatience that I think someone like Martin Luther King Jr. would absolutely condemn. So that sort of impatience that gives broader society that is currently languishing under a keenly felt sense of the burden of injustice, that would give that society just enough of a pressure release valve to feel better about itself and then move forward to an ongoing but maybe slightly less intolerable situation. That, I think, is the kind of impatience or the kind of impatient compromise that is that is morally reprehensible. But then there's the kind of impatience that, again, Martin Luther King talked about in his book, uh, Where Do We Go From Here? And even before that, his great uh, Why Do We Wait? Um, there are things that simply cannot be sheeted home to gradualism, that kind of slow but sure, steady progress towards something in the distant future. There are demands of justice now that need to be taken seriously. And where a kind of righteous impatience would come in would be to say, we have no alibi left. There is no morally credible reason that we have left in order to wait and prevent ourselves from doing what needs to be done. So I think for for me, it's holding those two ideas of impatience together and allowing just how deep, just how grave the claim of justice uh, is, in fact, on our common life, to let that be the determining factor. Something, I mean, I think you're right in describing the Uluru Statement from the Heart as being a document that is born out of impatience or born out of a kind of a deep sense of, dear God, how much longer does this have to happen? At the same time, it is a document of patience. I mean, it's not saying give us everything to which we are morally, politically no. entitled. It is... I agree, Scott. So, I agree. So, so there is this kind of, this, there's this strange tension. This is why for me, it's, it's quite simply one of the most important moral and political documents ever framed within the context of our common life. It, it really is. And and what I'm suggesting is not that it's an impatient document, but that there should there is and there should be impatience around yes. the the process. You know, that's really so and I, I agree with the distinction you've made through um, Martin Luther King's work. And what I would say is there's a term that helps us to determine the different kinds of impatience. On the one hand, yes, you do have the impatience that is uh, moves toward that, that motivates us to act and to act again in, in times when we pe- perhaps believe that we've got no more energy to act. So impatience can be a, a, a kind of prompt to further action in a positive sense. But impatience 
that is dealt with in haste, and that's the term, Mm -hmm. impatience that's dealt with in haste or responded to in haste is inevitably going to be problematic because haste is careless and it's inevitably thoughtless. Mm -hmm. So that's the problematic. I think that's something that possibly the three of us could agree on, that that impatience that's demonstrated in in terms of haste or hasty um, behaviour is problematic. What about impatience that results in inaction? Or just um, just giving out, giving really. up. Hmm, yeah. Interesting. Despair. Yeah, that's, right. yeah, that's I exactly I think we have another word is. for that. Yeah, is that and, is. and there is a lot of despair, quite rightfully, around the question of the status of the Uluru statement. Right. So what I'm asking though is, is there something immoral about that despair? No, I don't think it's immoral, but I do think it's under. I, I think it can be understandable. The question is how to move forward, and in every context, that's that's obviously going to be understood differently. No, but hang on, if we're going to say that patience is a virtue and that impatience is not, and no, we're that, not going to say that. <laughs> well, are we though? No, no, not precisely. Well, what are we saying then? Well, I, I think what I'd be saying is that patience, uh, I'd steer away from virtue, but patience is important. And I'd have a few other terms that I'd link to it, like, you know, um, grace and discernment and, and and much more active understanding of waiting. But that, you know, that there are moments and times when impatience can be just the thing. Yeah, but those times, as I understood you saying it, were times where that impatience was somehow productive. Yep. Right. So if we're talking about impatience that leads to despair, we're not talking about that kind of impatience. No, sorry, but I didn't think you were reducing all impatience to despair. No, no, no. But what I'm saying is if... Yeah, but I'm talking about that brand of impatience, that kind of impatience. Um, Hence the question I asked about whether or not that despair would become immoral or somehow morally compromised? No, I don't think so, because I just I think there's so much that can come from despair as well, and I don't think it's the end of the line. Who knows what the next move beyond that experience of despair can be? Can you, I don't know, put some flesh on those bones for me, illustrate how that might work? Um, that's, that's difficult, I guess, Walid, but I would be saying something along the lines of it might be when we reach rock bottom, and we can think of this either, you know, individually or politically in terms of groups, experiences, movements. It might be when we actually reach rock bottom or what we believe to be rock bottom that something new opens up, some new possibility opens up, and perhaps, you know, that, that can't happen until we've reached this sense of despair that this is it. it. That requires us not to be giving up, though, doesn't it? Ultimately, yeah. But I, I think perhaps there's an experience of giving up um, that then brings through, you know, whether you think of this in terms of a rebirth or a, uh, the possibility of, of new directions. This is really interesting because I've always only ever thought of despair almost as a kind of version or variant of nihilism, the the kind of giving up of the productive capacities of either one's life or the possibilities of our lives together. Um, so, so, for instance, I would see certain forms of a kind of political contemptuousness, you know, sort of contempt for our common life or for political figures or even for politics itself as a kind of base profession. I guess I've often thought about that almost as a form of fashionable 
despair, that I'm kind of giving up on the productive capacities of our common life or the project, the shared project that we refer to as democracy. Scott, what if we move it beyond that, though, and link the, the kind of despair, which is actually not a field I work in, but what if we link that with another term like absurdity and yeah, then think yeah, through arguments like Camus? I mean, I think absurdity allows us the possibility of a really then richer, different kind of engagement into the future. Can you uh, elaborate on that? That's really, wow, that's really interesting. Because, sorry, well, about, sorry, Michelle. Because sorry, the, this, no, no, go, Scott. this then would be, sorry, I'm just thinking out loud here. I mean, what, what absurdity does is it feels along and it represents sheerly in almost the most ridiculous terms the limits of our common life or of human life as such. And even then feeling along the limits, I've, I've often felt this sometimes in, say, the fiction of someone like Michel Welbeck, who, who I, I otherwise don't really think very much of at all. But there's, there's a kind of groping along the limits of modern experience that doesn't plunge you back into the self, but that almost f- lets you get a sense of what might be on the other side if we just had sufficient imagination to imagine it. Indeed. And, uh, you know, I would actually avoid Huelbeck in terms of what, what I've read of his, but, you know, I'd go right back to Camus' very timely and very prescient um, novel, The Plague, yeah. which, of course, many of us have reread during this period. And I think exactly what you're saying there, Scott, can be elaborated in terms of, of the experiences of Dr. Rion and the major players in that particular novel. What then of violence... Is violence always an expression of impatience? That um, deserves some patient thinking. Through <laughs> I'll give you I'm twenty-one sorry. seconds. You can pause Thank on you. it for twenty-one seconds, and then I'll fire it. Twenty-one seconds of silence. Um, I think violence is not inevitable, but it's it's a frequent kind of outcome, and and I think that touches on something that Scott you actually draw drew attention to earlier, and that is that impatience is so often a response to a lack of control or a perceived lack of Mm. control. And in that sense, it's very reactive. Um, And if we look at Trump's response, if we look at his actions, uh, you know, his impatient actions, it's easy to understand and make that connection to a person who's in a position who feels he's actually lost control or, or doesn't have control in that sense. And so violence and domination and overwhelming force and, you know, labeling the governors as weak, these are ways of reacting that I think uh, agree with what you're saying there, Waleed. Right, but the the question that I want to ask is not just can impatience lead to violence, but is violence always evidence of impatience? Hmm. Probably not. Probably not. Not always, but uh, but probably probably more. You know, the the question or the relation here is more with control. Hmm. It doesn't just have to be. Oh, hang on. I mean. Hmm. Okay, going back to Martin Luther King for a moment, he said something, it, it always surprises me whenever I reread it. He was reflecting on the 1967 uh, riots in Detroit and Newark, which for obvious reasons are kind of front of mind these days. And he mentioned that there are two things that are really surprising about those riots. One is that giving the opportunity for bloodshed There was no bloodshed. Even when police evacuated the streets and people were simply left to themselves, 
the amount of bloodshed was was minimal to the point of being vanishingly small. He said, and yet the very seizure of property, what was that? Was that really despair? Was that really kind of checking out of our common life? Was it a form of anarchy? And he took it as a form of, and this is his description, of hasty redistributive justice, which I mean, there is a kind of seizure of control there Mm. in the sense that property was taken. Something that is ours was taken. Something to which we have some moral claim was taken. And we're taking it back. But that's not control simply in the sense of sort of heedlessness. There is a kind of just claim there. And so, so he said that one of the then phenomena that he found most kind of heartening is the sheer number of rioters who, after taking things several weeks hence, called up various shop owners and wanted to give the things back. Now that they had taken what was theirs, they felt very comfortable with parting with it again. I think you're, you're right, Scott. And I think the difference there, of course, is that um, the kind of control or the reaction of control that that happens in the context of authority and power is a very different appeal to control that occurs within the context of injustice and expropriation. So, so, so what? Because of the lack of agency on one's behalf, one simply has to seize that agency for oneself. In certain contexts, quite possibly, yes. But, and I think the question of injustice and an unjust society frames a context that – so we, we can't always make, you know, blanket statements about this. But, yes, there, there will be differences. And at times the seeking of control, you know, may well be justified, may certainly understandable. But how do we pass this? See, as I listen to mm. this conversation – I'm left with the impression that impatience in the presence of injustice um, requires no justification. And I wonder about that. Mm, no, I, I wonder if I that's too, too that neat. That sounds dangerous. Mm. Yeah, that right. sounds dangerous. So yeah. where, where exactly are we drawing these lines? Where, at what point do we say that impatience is some kind of moral or at least not morally compromised response? How are we discerning this? I think in the particularity of context, Walid, because I think it comes back to what we started with, and that is it's really difficult to actually just set these up, these terms oppositionally, patience, impatience, but that in context, um, in the particularity of, of any given example, we will probably have to explore these terms anew. Right, but that gives us almost um, a buffet to choose from as far as figuring out it. I don't like, think so. You don't think so? No. Because Look, if, if, a- if you're going to resort to particularities in that way and you multiply that by the subjective apprehension of those particularities by every, in every actor that's apprehending them and then seeks to respond, I feel like you, you're going to end up in a situation where making any kind of morally-based judgment gets very, very complicated to the point of, of being... Well, almost arbitrary. Look, possibly. I, you know, what I find interesting here is that somehow I've found myself in a, or I've allowed myself to be in a situation where I'm kind of defending in, impatience, and <laughs> I don't. You know, it's not the position I want to hold. Um, well, all. it's what you got. <laughs> <laughs> Thanks, Willie. But you know, what I want to do is actually draw the draw attention back to the question of patience, and I do want to try and spend, you know, just a fraction of time trying to persuade you to something more about waiting, but. 
what about if we rethink patience um, in terms of being a pause before judgment? Hmm. That what's amazing about patience is that it provides us with that space. We can call it waiting or not, depending on your preference, but it's a pause before judgment. And what are we doing with the pause? Well, you know, one of the things that we could say about judgment is, for example, you know, um, the big complaint about Trump's tweets are that they're hasty and that they judge and actually that, you know, they have the finality of verdict in that sense, rather than the slow and careful thinking through the, the complexity and intensity of any given context. So the pause provides the space for literally for thought. Brings us back to teleology, doesn't it, Scott? Look, it, it does, but before we do, before we get back to teleology... We Michelle, don't have to go back there. I, I actually, <laughs> I, I do think we could even go deeper than what you just described. Um, this is where Stanley Cavell's particular understanding, I think, of skepticism comes in and the sheer number of things that need to be in play, the sheer number of things that I need to have at my disposal in order to make a thoroughgoing moral judgment of another person are so out of my reach and out of the epistemological frame within which human beings exist in and of themselves and relationally, that the act of moral judgment is almost, almost impossible, not in the sense that people cannot be judged, but there can never be that moment of finality. And I think there, it's not just the multiplicity or the particularities of a particular situation. It's also recognizing, my God, how many things would I need to be able to understand about this person to be able then to characterize or to generalize them as X, as Y. And, and this, I think, would be something that would be far closer both to Simone Weil, but also to Iris Murdoch, that kind of, that minute attentiveness to the other person, lest they then slip over into that kind of caricature that lets me pronounce final judgment on them. And could I say then, and this is, you, neither of you are going to like this, but this is why I'm so uncomfortable. I mean, perpetually uncomfortable, despite my profound dislike of the man and what he's doing to the, organi to the institution of the presidency. The way in which people have reduced even someone like Donald Trump to a kind of inhuman or dehumanized object that can be purely generalized about and therefore dismissed with utter contempt, that, that troubles me as well. So if we're talking about that hesitation before judgment, I mean, how far are we extending that? It seems to me that it's incumbent upon anybody who's serious about the moral life to extend that hesitation before judgment almost indefinitely. It is deeply troubling. You're right, Scott. <laughs> but but you no, you are right about that. And certainly um, there are people who are doing precisely what you're saying in relation to Trump and giving that kind of space and pause. Maybe we're not doing it here at this moment. But yes, I mean, you. I think you're, you're right largely in that sense of uh, if we're to make judgments about others, we, you know, it is incumbent upon us to engage in in really profound ways um, and, and in complex ways and in intense ways, I think, as well. 
But again, I can think this is again where the question of power and context does come in. The the leader of the so-called free world, um, the behaviour of the, that leader, you know, there are consequences well beyond perhaps our daily moral judgments. Uh, I'm not saying that we shouldn't also be accountable. We should, but just I did want to come back to that sense that that you know what we saw in Trudeau's response really to to the question in relation to to the US president's response to the the protesters his response did represent literally that pause before judgment mm. i think we are out of time michelle but i'm going to give you a chance to say one last thing about waiting because i got the sense that you <laughs> I've been to, waiting. You've been waiting to say <laughs> it. Yeah. I, I have indeed. Um, I think there's, oh, golly, it's really difficult to say, but, you know, there's a sense in which we started with this notion, and I fully agreed, I think, Scott, you brought it up first, but the, the, that the quality of attention is crucial here in terms of patience and in terms of any ethical relation with others or with the world. And from that, you know, we can talk about discernment too. And I think discernment's a really interesting term here because what it is effectively is the kind of sustained attention that we develop over time. So it's not just the ability to be focused and and really super attentive right now, but to develop that in really intense ways over time. In a lot of ways, I think that's what we get from Simone Weil's work on waiting, that waiting is an incredibly active process that is in the process of discerning and and developing the ability to be attentive. We'll end on that note. It's not a bad <laughs> note on which to <laughs> end, beautiful. Michelle. I'm yeah. going to give you your full attribution now because we didn't have time in the radio show. Michelle Willis-Walker, Associate Professor in Philosophy in the School of Historical and Philosophical Inquiry at the University of Queensland. That's where you can find her uh, and you can also find her on this podcast. Thank you so much, Michelle. We really appreciate it. Thank you. And that was the best we could muster on the topic of impatience <laughs> in 2020. <laughs> Which, admittedly, is pretty good. I mean, I don't know any other show that can pull off exactly what it is that we and Michelle Bullis-Walker I off. think it's right. No show can pull off exactly what we <laughs> do. Um, next week, I, so this is interesting. Next week was one of the very, was it the first show that we did in 2020? It was, it was the second, Willie. Second, it was the second. Yeah. And do you know what the first one was? I can't even remember. I know. It was about 2020. It was about oh. 20 with George Megalogenis. As soon we you, we love George Megalogenis. Yeah, yeah, yeah. He's invariably brilliant. Yeah. Everything we said on that show was completely irrelevant, irrelevant. for everything that was about to come. So we're going to bring you a show on trees instead. <laughs> Enjoy that. We'll see you next week. Well, no, hang on, hang on. Yes, we're doing a show about trees, but do you remember <laughs> the way that 2019 ended and the way that 2020 I do. began? So yeah, this, the bush, I get all that. Yeah, I mean, I, 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 that. I know you see we're doing trees instead, but gee whiz, that was oh. that was a show and that was one for the ages. I understand, but we're now taking twice as long to do this oh, as yeah. we're allowed. Sorry, so we've got to go. I'll show you. You've been listening to an ABC podcast. You can discover more ABC podcasts, live radio, and exclusives on the ABC Listener.